You're listening to a podcast from Reality Honolulu. For more information or ways to get involved in the life of the church, visit realityhonolulu.com. Thanks for listening. But how are you guys doing this morning? Good? All right. Well, welcome. Aloha if uh, I have not met you. My name is Riz, pastor here at Reality Honolulu. And uh, just blessed, stoked to have you here this morning fellowshipping with us. Um, as always, after a time of worship and kind of announcements of what's going on in the life of the church, we like to get into the Word of God and dig in and hear what God has for us this morning. So why don't you open up with the book to me with the book of Exodus. Uh, we've been going through Exodus since about Easter, uh, kind of systematically, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. You've been digging into the stuff that's weird, awkward, strange, funny, whatever you want to call it. Um, but we're excited. And in this last section of Exodus, specifically chapters 25 through 40, like really like the last third of the book, has some of the most important stuff in it, but also maybe the most unread parts of Scripture. Um, because to be honest, it may only keep our attention just barely more than like a genealogy. We get to a genealogy in the Bible with all these names we can't pronounce. We have no frame of reference. They're not our own family. We get lost. We skip. We're like, we're out. We, we do the, pretty much the book of Exodus, at least the last third, barely holds our attention more. And mainly what it is, it's filled with instructions, very detailed instructions um, of some really important stuff. And so we're not going to skip over it. We're not going to just um, go, well, that's not important anymore because it really is. Even though it may seem weird and irrelevant, it is absolutely not. And um, before we read it, I just want to remind you guys that my prayer and my hope as a church is that on Sundays, as we study God's word, that you'd get more out of it than just what I say. Like, more than just expounding on the text, but rather, my prayer is that each of us like would grow in a passion and a desire for the word of God ourself. Maybe that you get some more tools, some more understanding. Maybe you get some more, you know, biblical context of what you're reading so that you actually want to do it and you understand it more because we believe that God's word is living and active and when you read it, you encounter the living God in its pages. Amen? Um, so that's the hope. And so uh, like many weeks in our time of Exodus when there's a longer part of Scripture, like more than two chapters, which we have today. Um, it's going to take some attention span, like workout, so you can do it. But we have different men and women from the body come up and read our scripture before we teach it. And so I want uh, to invite up a dear sister and servant of the Lord this morning, Tati Quesada. Come on up. Let's give her some love. Read us the word of God. I don't know what you're talking about. This is exciting stuff. Okay. 12 minutes. Let's do this. All right. The priestly garments from Exodus 28. Have Aaron, your brother, brought to you from among the Israelites, along with his sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar, so they may serve me as priests. Make sacred garments for your brother Aaron to give him dignity and honor. Tell all the skilled workers to whom I have given wisdom in such matters that they are to make garments for Aaron for his consecration, so he may serve me as priest. These are the garments they are to make, a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a woven tunic, 
a turban, and a sash. They are to make these sacred garments for your brother Aaron and his sons, so they may serve me as priests. Have them use gold and blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and fine linen. Make the ephod of gold and of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and of finely twisted linen, the work of skilled hands. It is to have two shoulder pieces attached to two of its corners so it can be fastened. Its skillfully woven waistband is to be like it, of one piece with the ephod and made with gold and with blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and with finely twisted linen. Take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel in the order of their birth, six names on one stone and the remaining six on the other. Engrave the names of the sons of Israel on the two stones the way a gem cutter engraves a seal. Then mount the stones in gold filigree settings and fasten them on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as memorial stones for the sons of Israel. Aaron is to bear the names on his shoulders as a memorial before the Lord. Make gold filigree settings and two braided chains of pure gold like a rope and attach the chains to the settings." Fashion a breastpiece for making decisions, the work of skilled hands. Make it like the ephod of gold and of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and of finely twisted linen. It is to be square, a span long and a span wide, and folded double. Then mount four rows of precious stones on it. The first row shall be carnelian, chrysolite, and beryl. The second row shall be turquoise, lapis lazuli, and emerald. The third row shall be jacinth, agate, and amethyst. The fourth row shall be topaz, onyx, and jasper. Mount them in gold filigree settings. There are to be 12 stones, one for each of the names of the sons of Israel, each engraved like a seal with the name of one of the 12 tribes. For the breastpiece, make braided chains of pure gold like a rope. Make two gold rings for it and fasten them to two corners of the breastpiece. Fasten the two gold chains to the rings at the corners of the breastpiece and the other ends of the chains to the two settings, attaching them to the shoulder pieces of the ephod at the front. Make two gold rings and attach them to the other two corners of the breastpiece on the inside edge next to the ephod. Make two more gold rings and attach them to the bottom of the shoulder pieces on the front of the ephod, close to the seam just above the waistband of the ephod. The rings of the breastpiece are to be tied to the rings of the ephod with blue cord, connecting it to the waistband so that the breastpiece will not swing out from the ephod. Whenever Aaron enters the holy place, he will bear the names of the sons of Israel over his heart on the breastpiece of decision as a continuing memorial before the Lord. Also, put the Urim and the Thummim in the breastpiece, so they may be over Aaron's heart whenever he enters the presence of the Lord. Thus, Aaron will always bear the means of making decisions for the Israelites over his heart before the Lord." Make the robe of the ephod entirely of blue cloth with an opening for the head in its center. There shall be a woven edge like a collar around this opening so that it will not tear. Make pomegranates of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn around the hem of the robe with gold bells between them. The gold bells and the pomegranates are to alternate around the hem of the robe. Aaron must wear it when he ministers. The sound of the bells will be heard when he enters the holy place before the Lord and when he comes out so that he will not die. Make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it as a seal, holy to the Lord. Fasten a blue cord to it and attach it to the turban. It is to be on the front of the turban. It will be on Aaron's forehead, and he will bear the guilt involved in the sacred gifts the Israelites consecrate, whatever their gifts may be. It will be on Aaron's forehead continually, so they will be acceptable to the Lord. 
Weave the tunic of fine linen and make the turban of fine linen. The sash is to be the work of an embroiderer. Make tunics, sashes, and caps for Aaron's sons to give them dignity and honor. After you put these clothes on your brother Aaron and his sons, anoint and ordain them. Consecrate them so they may serve me as priests. Make linen undergarments as a covering for the body, reaching from the waist to the thigh. Aaron and his sons must wear them whenever they enter the tent of meeting or approach the altar to minister in the holy place, so that they will not incur guilt and die. This is to be a lasting ordinance for Aaron and his descendants. Chapter 29. This is what you are to do to consecrate them, so they may serve me as priests. Take a young bull and two rams without defect. And from the finest wheat flour, make round loaves without yeast, thick loaves without yeast and with olive oil mixed in, and thin loaves without yeast and brushed with olive oil. Put them in a basket and present them along with the bull and the two rams. Then bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance to the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Take the garments and dress Aaron with the tunic, the robe of the ephod, the ephod itself, and the breastpiece. Fasten the ephod on him by its skillfully woven waistband. Put the turban on his head and attach the sacred emblem to the turban. Take the anointing oil and anoint him by pouring it on his head. Bring his sons and dress them in tunics and fasten caps on them. Then tie sashes on Aaron and his sons. The priesthood is theirs by a lasting ordinance. Then you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. Bring the bull to the front of the tent of meeting, and Aaron and his son shall lay their hands on its head. Slaughter it in the Lord's presence at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Take some of the bull's blood and put it on the horns of the altar with your finger, and pour out the rest of it at the base of the altar. Then take all the fat on the internal organs, the long lobe of the liver, and both kidneys with the fat on them, and burn them on the altar. But burn the, blo- excuse me, but burn the bull's flesh and its hide and its intestines outside the camp. It is a sin offering." Take one of the rams, and Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on its head. Slaughter it, and take the blood, and splash it against the side of the altar. Cut the ram into pieces, and wash the internal organs and the legs, putting them with the head and the other pieces. Then burn the entire ram on the altar. It is a burnt offering to the Lord, a pleasing aroma, a food offering presented to the Lord. Take the other ram, and Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on its head. Slaughter it, take some of its blood, and put it on the lobes of the right ears of Aaron and his sons, on the thumbs of their right hands, and on the big toes of their right feet. Then splash blood against the sides of the altar, and take some blood from the altar and some of the anointing oil, and sprinkle it on Aaron and his garments, and on his sons and their garments. Then he and his sons and their garments will be consecrated." Take from this ram the fat, the fat tail, the fat on the internal organs, the long lobe of the liver, both kidneys with the fat on them, and the right thigh. This is the ram for the ordination. From the basket of bread made without yeast, which is before the Lord, take one round loaf, one thick loaf with olive oil mixed in, and one thin loaf. Put all these in the hands of Aaron and his sons and have them wave them before the Lord as a wave offering. Then take them from their hands and burn them on the altar along with the burnt offering for a pleasing aroma to the Lord, a food offering presented to the Lord. After you take the breast of the ram for Aaron's ordination, wave it before the Lord as a wave offering and it will be your share. Consecrate those parts of the ordination ram that belonged to Aaron and his sons, the breast that was waved and the thigh that was presented. This is always to be the perpetual share from the Israelites for Aaron and his sons. It is the contribution the Israelites are to make to the Lord from their fellowship offerings. Aaron's second garments will belong to his descendants so that they can be anointed and ordained in them. 
sacred, sorry. The son, who succeeded, the son who succeeds him as priest and comes to the tent of meeting to minister in the holy place is to wear them seven days. Take the ram for the ordination and cook the meat in a sacred place. At the entrance to the tent of meeting, Aaron and his sons are to eat the meat of the ram and the bread that is in the basket. They are to eat these offerings by which atonement was made for their ordination and consecration. But no one else may eat them because they are sacred. And if any of the meat of the ordination ram or any bread is left over until morning, burn it up. It must not be eaten because it is sacred. Do for Aaron and his sons everything I have commanded you, taking seven days to ordain them. Sacrifice a bull each day as a sin offering to make atonement. Purify the altar by making atonement for it and anoint it to consecrate it. For seven days, make atonement for the altar and consecrate it. Then the altar will be most holy and whatever touches it will be holy. This is what you are to offer on the altar regularly each day, two lambs a year old. Offer one in the morning and the other at twilight. With the first lamb, offer a tenth of an ephah of the finest flour mixed with a quarter of a hin of oil pressed from olives and a quarter of a hin of wine as a drink offering. Sacrifice the other lamb at twilight with the same grain offering and its drink offering as in the morning, a pleasing aroma, a food offering presented to the Lord. For the generations to come, this burnt offering is to be made regularly at the entrance to the tent of meeting before the Lord. There I will meet you and speak to you. There also I will meet with the Israelites, and the place will be consecrated by my glory. So I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar, and will consecrate Aaron and his sons to serve me as priests. Then I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. They will know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Chapter 30, make an altar of acacia wood for burning incense. It is to be square, a cubit long and a cubit wide, and two cubits high, its horns of one piece with it. Overlay the top and all the sides and the horns with pure gold and make a gold molding around it. Make two gold rings for the altar below the molding, two on each of the opposite sides to hold the poles used to carry it. Make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Put the altar in front of the curtain that shields the Ark of the Covenant Law before the atonement cover that is over the tablets of the covenant law, where I will meet you. Aaron must burn fragrant incense on the altar every morning when he tends the lamps. He must burn incense again when he lights the lamps at twilight, so incense will burn regularly before the Lord for the generations to come. Do not offer on this altar any other incense or any burnt offering or grain offering, and do not pour a drink offering on it. Once a year, Aaron shall make atonement on its horns. This annual atonement must be made with the blood of the atoning sin offering for the generations to come. It is most holy to the Lord. Great job. Amazing. Great job, Tati. Thank you so much. Uh, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word in its entirety. Thank you that each word and part of it we believed is God-breathed and God-inspired, and it's profitable, like has purpose, it has meaning to it. And God, I pray that you'd give us understanding now into this very different culture in a very different time and place. It's very different to our culture and our time and our place. I pray that you'd give us meaning and context and significance to what was happening here, what it shows us about you and your character and 
And the reason why you detailed all this and said to do these things and everything down to, you know, the stones and the way that sacrifices were supposed to be made and when they were and how they were with the priesthood, we just thank you that this is your word and you desire to speak to us today. So Holy Spirit, we invite you here, ask for uh, an anointing. I pray that I'd be your mouthpiece to communicate these words this morning. Pray that you just have your way. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I'm not sure how many of you on here are handy, specifically with cars. Um, I did not grow up learning how to fix my own car. I really wish I did. I'm hoping I can pass that on to my kids. Um, but I've always loved cars, um, and I've always wanted like some kind of like adventure mobile. Like, I don't know, just you think of like a, something that could like travel the world and safari and whatever it is. I've always like, oh, I would love to have those. I would love to have one of those one day. But I know nothing really about cars and don't know how to do that, so okay. But a few years ago, um, I stumbled across in like an abandoned field behind this fence what I thought was an old Land Rover. Real classic, like just think like Safari Africa car. And it was. It was this old, beaten down, abandoned, like rusty in pieces old Land Rover. And I ended up finding who owned the field, and I asked him, can I buy it? And I bought this thing for 500 bucks. And it was just literally more pieces and more boxes. Like the transmission's out, the roof's off, like there's nothing's labeled. You're finding things in the field. Do you even have all the parts? These questions, don't even know these questions. Does it run? Nothing, nothing, you don't know anything, but I bought it. And over the course of three years, a lot of YouTube videos and really good friends, uh, we put it back together and ran, and it was awesome. Here's a picture of it. Do I have it? This is super cool. No, I'm telling you, it was amazing. But Hawaii is expensive, so we had to sell it to get here. But um, <laughs> probably regret that forever. But this was like nothing. I mean, honestly, like every piece, gas tank, everything. You had to learn everything. Um, but we got it running. Um, Malsh, the guy's doing PowerPoint right there. He was involved many late nights also, putting that in. Thank you, buddy. Um, but we did it, but it was a journey. I mean, it was so hard. Uh, cars are hard to work on. But when I, so when I first opened up all these boxes, pop the hood, like even the littlest details would overwhelm me. Like I would look at a bolt and I'd be like, how am I ever going to figure out where that is? Like, seriously, like how, this is like 40 years old. I don't know what I'm doing. How is this going to happen? Um, but over time, began to learn, like the, like, the bigger systems, like the fundamental systems of how a car ran, right? The big picture, like how combustion works and how the drivetrain works. And you start to learn, like, the bigger pictures of how a car works. And then all of a sudden, that, like, meaningful little bolt is like, that's the bolt I needed. And I totally get the importance of that bolt because I understand the big picture of, like, kind of how a car works. Literally, this is the same when it comes to the Bible, right? So when it comes to the Bible as a whole, especially scriptures from today, when Tati's like eight minutes in today, you could have been questioning, why are we reading this? Like, why does the fat on the liver of the kidney of the whatever, and I go burn it, how is this even a part of my life? 
Well, that's, it's not really. But it's important still, and it's meaningful for something else. And my point is, is that we can get so lost in the ornate details, the instructions, like today's text. We can literally throw it out if we don't understand how all these little pieces fit into the larger story. And so to understand, like, the priest's garments in the tabernacle at the foot of Mount Sinai, like, to understand all that. We actually, and this is probably good anytime, we have to go back to the garden, Garden of Eden, first, ch- first couple chapters of the Bible, right? W- what is God's purpose in this? Why is he doing this? Why is he writing this down? What are these little things? Like, why is that significant? Okay, so bring it back. What's the big picture? God's intended purpose for creation has always been, from the beginning, unhindered communion. Humanity and God in the garden and all is good. Heaven meets earth. There's no sin. Nothing's messed up. Everything's perfect. Everything's wonderful. And God is literally walking with his people and all is right in the world. But what happens is, you know the story, humanity, Adam and Eve, they chose autonomy over communion. Chose to do their own thing in their own way and disobey God. And so they chose autonomy over communion with their creator. And trust was broken. And sin entered the world. And Adam and Eve were alienated from that very garden and from God's unhindered presence. Now, right, there's this distance, this separation due to humanity's rebellion and disobedience. And the entirety of scripture is trying to remedy this. Like it's literally asking the question and it's trying to get back to how can we once again, can God's creation be brought back into loving union with God's unhindered presence once again? That is the entirety of the story. And it's walking in and out of humanity, trying to get them back into the presence of God. And I think, though, it's important to understand holiness, God's holiness a bit more to give us context of what's happening here in the middle of the Sinai Desert because it deals with God's presence and his holiness with a sinful people. And it's not a perfect analogy, but I've heard it said that God's holiness can be compared to the heat of the sun. Right, so the sun that we all know well, especially here in Hawaii, It keeps us alive. It grows our food. It gives us life. Like the sun's heat, its rays, what it does for the earth is necessary for life. Like here on earth, we could not live without the sun. But if you were to move closer and closer to the sun, right, it would become unbearable. Like we we have to keep a healthy, like millions of mile distance from the sun. It's that powerful, right? Even at a distance, um, if your skin is as pale as mine, we get sunburned really easy. Like, like even at this distance, the power of the sun, we feel it. We feel it if we're outside for a little bit. And in the same way, God's holiness and his presence literally gives life to all creation. But in his presence... 
Like, like a, if a sinful people or an unholy people come in too much proximity to God's presence, it would literally kill us. The Bible describes his presence as a consuming fire. He's that holy. He's that perfect. He's that glorious. He's that wonderful. And sin just, it's like oil and water. Can't, can't exist together. So the tabernacle, why, why the tabernacle, why, why this tent that we studied like two weeks ago is so, such a big deal, is it's making a way for the presence of God to dwell in the midst of a very sinful people. Like, this is a big deal, that God's presence is even near them. It's even around them. But again, once again, God is trying to bridge this gap. He's trying to communicate and remind them, I've always wanted to be with you. I've always wanted to be your God and you to be my people. So what happens is, in our study of the tabernacle, right, all the tent and all the courts, the entire camp is centered around the Holy of Holies, right? The Holy of Holies housed the Ark of the Covenant and the Ark of the Covenant, which is the presence of God. And there was like all these measures. There's all these rules. There's all these regulations. There's all this, this distance created between God's presence and God's people. Again, because it was in place to protect the people of God from the presence of God. Right? These, these sinful, unrighteous people in the desert, complaining, sinning, being human just like us, couldn't be in the place of God's perfect holiness. And so a structure was laid out, distance was created, and now we see there's a whole priesthood. There's a priesthood that's made up. And there's certain ways to dress there's certain times of year. There's certain things you need to do in order to even prepare yourself to even get near God's holy presence. Everything has significance and purpose. The priest's wardrobe, the timing, their consecration, like the cleansing or their setting apart was all due to God's holiness. It wasn't just to look cool, which... 12 different types of gemstones representing the tribes of Israel. That's pretty cool. But it wasn't just to look cool. It wasn't just for fun. It wasn't just for religion's sake. It was very purposeful because they were entering into the presence and the power of God. And I'm not sure your, you know, experience uh, or when you grew up, or your knowledge of, of priests, you know, if you grew up Catholic, maybe you have a, a, a big knowledge of, of the priesthood. But mainly, priests in general, like the function of a priest, is to mainly speak on behalf, or be the middle person that you need to go through to get to God or something from God. It's a very, like, broken down definition of what a priest would be. But priests very, are very similar to mediators, right, between humanity and God, especially in the area of sacrifice, right? So the priesthood in Israel, what they did a lot was they sacrificed animals for different offerings unto God. Some of these were sin offerings. So what the priesthood or the, the you know, the, the high priest would do 
was he would kill an animal on behalf of all of Israel's sin. Right? So the, the, the life of an animal or the life of, of a creature lives in its blood. And so the thought was they have to kill the animal in order to give a life for a life. Like we need to pay for the penalty of sin that we've caused you, God. And so once a year, the high priest on Yom Kippur, right, the holiest days of the Jewish calendar, actually just celebrated this week was Yom Kippur in the Jewish calendar. Once a year, what would happen was is that the priest would go in this was after a week of consecrating himself and cleansing himself and being set apart. Again, remember, he had to be anointed to do this. He was, at, he was from the bloodline of Aaron. He couldn't just become a priest. You had to be born into it. This one man, one time a year, after he was born into a priesthood and cleansed and authorized to do this, he was able to enter into the Holy of Holies. And atone for, or to sacrifice for, the sins of Israel. And so this priest was the mediator. He was the one that people had to go through in order to get to God, or get forgiveness for, from God. And God's presence was just so powerful that we see in our text today that literally they had to like, like tie a rope on him with a bell. And they had to make sure the bell was still moving in the Holy of Holies, that he didn't die in the presence of God. And if he died, he had to pull him out. Like, it's, it's the, like the presence of God, even the high priest had to take precautions because God is so holy. He's so wonderful. He's so powerful. But all this to say, it is an understatement that access to God was limited and highly specialized. Not everyone could get to God, couldn't do it on your own, couldn't really get close or else you'd die. Again, there may have been a short distance physically from the Ark or the Holy of Holies to the people of Israel. You know what, 20, 30 feet, whatever, 100 feet. But the chasm was enormous. Humanity's sins and God's holiness wasn't the garden anymore. It was a far cry from the garden. And all of this was actually pointing really to the insufficiency of this system for God to truly be with his people. This was so not the garden of Eden. Sin and rebellion and disobedience and unrighteousness had so clouded, so broken, so hurt the communion with God that as incredible as the tabernacle or the, temp, the temple would be, it was a far cry from God's original intent. Again, the fullness of God's presence, as we just heard, is, is powerful. It's maybe scary. It's holy. Like, if you get into it, you're going to die. Like, that's like the powerful part. But we also see from Scripture that God's presence is actually where creation finds its fullness of joy. Right, Psalm 16, in your presence is fullness of joy. And God also is love. He's actually pure, perfect love. And so in his presence, you actually experience the love of God, the perfect, unconditional love of God that you cannot find anywhere else in all of creation. 
Also in God's presence, we find peace that surpasses all understanding. Things that we can't even comprehend, that we shouldn't feel peace about in his presence, we feel peace. So when we're not in God's presence, we're missing out of, on all of this. Like when we're not in the presence of God as God intended it for his people in perfect communion to be in, then we're missing out on God's original intent of how he created us to be. Like we're, we're actually created to experience like the fullness of the love of God. And anytime we're not, like we're lacking, we're going to hurt, like something's going to strain, something's going to break. You know, we're, we're supposed to experience fullness of joy. I'm not just talking about momentary happiness. I'm talking about in the presence of God, the joy that you were created to feel, you can experience. Like it's a joy we can't comprehend, a peace that we can't comprehend. So what's happening here in Exodus is actually pointing towards one that would come to fulfill what was lacking. One that would come to ultimately fulfill God's judgment and wrath, to bridge the gap, fix the relationship which sin had caused. Anybody know who that is? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. Jesus, his death on the cross, the Bible talks about, it's this rich theological term that his death was actually a propitiation for our sins. This word propitiation means the sacrifice that satisfies. So remember, sacrifices. Once a year, the high priest had to sacrifice for the sins of Israel. And he had to do this continually. And there was different offerings. There was a once a year offering. There was a weekly offering. There was a daily offering. And the Bible says, 1 John 2, 2, that he himself, Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins. And not ours only, but also those of the whole world. When Jesus died on the cross as a sacrifice, his death was the sacrifice that paid for God's wrath and judgment forever like the ultimate the once and for all sacrifice the reason why I prayed the way I did is that not being a Jew thousands of years ago we don't understand sacrifice too much we think it's weird we think it's foreign we don't get it but I hope for a second you can draw yourself into the life of Israel to the life of a Jew you lived and died by sacrifice. It was the only way in which you atoned for your sins before God. That year after year you had to make pilgrimage to Jerusalem with an unblemished lamb to take that sacrifice before God to be forgiven your sins. And now Jesus comes on the scene. He dies as the perfect lamb of God. And his death is the sacrifice that satisfied the wrath of God forever. No more needs for bulls and goats and lambs. No more need. Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. Do you see that? You just heard detail in chapter of detail after detail of this. But what we see from the New Testament is that Christ's sacrifice paid the debt of our sin. 
Not only once a year, but for eternity. Right? Jesus' life, his sinless, perfect life was given in place for our sinful lives. And God's wrath was satisfied. And our debt was paid. It's also a really cool old theological term from 2 Corinthians 5.21. They call this the great exchange. Great is an understatement word. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, And he made him, Jesus, God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The reason why they call this the great exchange is that Jesus took our sin upon himself. He died. And what he gave us is his righteousness. That is a raw deal. That's a bad deal. But that's why the gospel is good news and it's great news. It's because Jesus took what we accrued. Our junk, our sin, our disobedience, our rebellion, and he died to pay for it. And he said, I'm going to impute, I'm going to give you my righteousness so now that when you stand before my Father who is in heaven, you'll be seen as righteous because I paid your price. This is what's happening here. And what Hebrews does, which the book of Hebrews, it can be confusing, but once you know a little bit more about the Old Testament, it's like the greatest commentary on what's actually happening in the Old Testament. So the book of Hebrews says that Christ is now our great high priest. Remember those words. We just read all about the high priest. Hebrews 2, 17. Therefore, he had to be like his brethren in all things, so that he might, Jesus, might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. To make what? Propitiation for the sins of the people. So what it's saying here is that Jesus now is the only mediator that we now need. That is what it's saying here. 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Who, who's our mediator? Who do we need to go through in order to get to God? It's Jesus. Right? Even in a conversation with his disciples in John 14, Jesus answered them and said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through who? Through me. See, Jesus has actually given us full access now to the presence and the person of God. We talked about this a few weeks ago, but when Jesus died on the cross, the temple... In the temple at the time, there was a veil, right, that separated the holy of holies from God's people. The veil literally tore in two as Jesus died on the cross. Why did it do that? Because now there was no separation between God's presence and God's people because of the work of the cross. And so now we can boldly, all the time, everywhere, through the blood of the lamb, get to God. And what this, is, what this means is that we don't need any human or institution to go through to get to God. Wait, we understand here from Scripture that we don't need to go through priests in order to get to God. That 
that literally God wants to speak to us, and we we can be in his presence, and we can commune with him, and we can experience him through Christ's finished work. That doesn't mean that we still don't, there's not a role for, you know, pastors or churches in an evangelical sense. But my, my role as a pastor or a shepherd is to not only equip the saints for the work of the ministry, but to actually expound upon God's word and tell you, you actually don't need me to get to God. You need Jesus. It doesn't mean that you should like not fellowship and not be in a church and not in community. No, that's all good and right. But when it comes to you getting to God, you don't got to go through me. That's what that means. And again, we, unlike the priests, don't have to do anything, ritual or traditions, to gain acceptance or admittance into God's presence. All we have to do is believe and receive in the finished work of the cross, and Jesus made the way. And I know this is sensitive and maybe sticky, depending on your upbringing. And, um, but here's, one, here's how one commentator put it when it comes to the priesthood. Protestants today may not always see the practical value in priesthood since we do not believe that the mediation of a special order of priests is necessary to assist in our approach to God, which we just talked about, unlike, for example, Roman Catholicism. So we differ there, one of the things. However, this does not mean that priesthood is somehow unimportant or unnecessary. In fact, Scripture teaches that we all require a priest to approach God, but what Hebrews emphasizes is that Jesus Christ himself is our priest, indeed our great high priest, and he has no rivals. Therefore, we do not need to rely on any lesser order or imperfect priest to approach God. Again, this is what we believe that the word of God is saying due to the finished work of Jesus upon the cross. And to further, like, put a bow on what's happening in the book of Exodus, Hebrews, once again, is unpacking all of this for us. And I want to just highlight a few of the verses in Hebrews chapter 10. It will give us an amazing understanding of how Christ now is our high priest. Hebrews 10, the old system under the law of Moses, which we're reading in Exodus, was only a shadow. It was a dim preview of the good things to come, not the good things themselves. The sacrifices under that system, which we just read about, were repeated again and again, year after year, but they were never able to provide perfect cleansing for those who came to worship. If they could have provided perfect cleansing, the sacrifices would have stopped, for the worshipers would have been purified once for all time, and their feelings of guilt would have disappeared. But instead, those sacrifices actually reminded them of their sins year after year. For God's will was for us to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. Verse 11. Under the old covenant, the priests stands and ministers before the altar day after day, offering the same sacrifices again and again, which can never take away sins. But our high priest 
offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins, good for all time. The writer goes on to say, and so, dear brothers and sisters, church, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him. For our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean, and our bodies have been washed with pure water. Can I get an amen? amen? Like, Jesus is so good. This is what sets apart Christianity. This is why we can say that Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship. Like, if the law pointed us towards religion, Jesus, through grace, would point us back to the relationship that God wanted in the garden. Like, do you see that? I've said this before, and I'll say it like a million times. Do you know why Jesus, it's a rhetorical question, you don't have to answer. Do you know why Jesus died on the cross? You'd mainly say, to forgive our sins. Yeah, but why? Why? Because the relationship was broken, okay? So what does forgiveness of sins do that relationship? It fixes it. Why does, why does, why did God send his son to die? That's weird. Why would God send his son to die for me? Because he loved us so much he wanted to be with us. And he was willing to do anything, even send his son to a brutal death in order to get us. If that's not a love story, I don't know what is. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Ethan. Always for the encouragement. So guys, what does that mean for us now? This should, this should cause us to worship. It should cause us to like go to our face before Jesus and worship. But what does that mean for us now? Living in Hawaii, 2019, your life. Put, 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 you know, put your life in there. This is the job. This is where I live. This is how much I make. This is my family. This is my friends. This is my upbringing. What does that mean now that you have full access to God through the blood of Jesus Christ? Well, it means that at any moment, at any time, you can call upon God. He can speak to you. You can be near to him. You can ask him things, and you can experience the fullness of his character in your life. Regardless of what's in your bank account, regardless of what you look like, where you're from, God wants to be with you and speak to you and commune with you and be in relationship with you. A lot of times we, we so forget that it's a relationship that we just want a to-do list. How should I be a Christian? How should, I, how should I be in relationship with Jesus? Well, that would be the same thing as like, how are you in relationship with your spouse or a friend or your, your mom? Or like, how are you in relationship? You spend time with them. You talk to them. You listen. You're around them. Like, that's how you foster relationship is by communing with the person. The same is with our God. It's looking at his word. What did God say? It's in prayer. It's in worship. It's just speaking to God. It's asking God to, to show himself to you. Literally, the creator that created all things, because of who Jesus is, made him near to us. Once we were far off, now we have been brought near by the blood of the lamb. Amen? Amen. Let's worship.
God, we thank you for your word and thank you that we find you in it. And thank you that you don't leave us hanging. You don't, you don't just say, you know what, do this life on your own. I'll see you in heaven. You give us your word and your Holy Spirit. And you allow us to meet with you. We can now boldly approach the throne of a holy God because we've made righteous and been made righteous in Christ Jesus. God, the book of Hebrews would say boldly approach with confidence. God, we don't even know how to do that, but we need your help. We want to experience you. We want to know you. We want to hear from you. We want to speak to you. We want to be in relationship with our creator and our savior and our God as you intended it. But God, we've been out of relationship for so long. We've been messed up by sin in the world. God, we need help. Would you help to foster relationship with you? And even as we enter into this time of worship, Father, we ask for your manifest presence here. We ask that you would inhabit the praises of your people. Your word also says that you would do that as your people cry out, that you would actually come and inhabit this space. We ask that you do that now. You get all the glory and all the credit. We're standing in awe of you and we're thankful for you, Father.